Father, I would pray that we'd be more dependent on you every day, resting and leaning on who you are. In your name we pray. Amen. Titus chapter 2 is where we are this morning. If you're in first through third grade, you can head on to our children's church time as we have a lesson prepared for you, specifically focused on those age groups, first through third grade. The rest of us are turning to Titus chapter 2, as Titus is recognizing the character, or as Paul is explaining to Titus and reminding him about the characteristics of a healthy church. In chapter 1, dealing with healthy leadership, what that looks like. Chapter 2, healthy membership. And chapter 3, a healthy mission. Perhaps you can come up with another M that is a word for leadership, and you can alliterate the whole book if you want. I couldn't think of one. And so we have leadership, membership, and mission. Chapter 1, 2, and 3. We're in Titus chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 10 and ask the Lord's blessing on the sermon. Titus chapter 2 and verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works in your teaching. Show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Heavenly Father, as we look into these words this morning, may the divine Scripture speak into our heart. May you bring illumination. And if there's one here who's not a Christian, may you turn that heart of stone into a heart of flesh that they may place their faith and trust in you alone for salvation. In your name we pray. Amen. In June of 2021, Joseph Chamey wrote an article for The Hill outlining what he sees as one of the major problems facing Americans in the 21st century. The article is entitled, America's Health Crisis. Despite the increasing lifespan of the 21st century and the marvels of modern medicine, Jamie records that, believe it or not, Americans are more unhealthy than ever before. The two main causes of preventable health, he records in this article, in America each year are tobacco use and obesity, contributing to nearly one million preventable deaths each year. Most of these deaths could have been prevented 
If people plagued by these conditions submitted to simple lifestyle choices that over a period of time would improve their health and thus prevent damage to their body in an early death. So his conclusion is the following. By the way, if you want to be very convicted about your lifestyle, read the article. For me, I was like, oh my goodness, I don't ever want to read this again. His conclusion, failing to address America's unhealthy lifestyles not only contributes to undermining the country's current well-being, but it also endangers America's future. Scripture references that your body belongs to God and is the temple of the Holy Spirit and thus should be treated as such. However, the scripture that we looked at this morning does not focus on the health of your physical body. Our passage focuses on the spiritual health of the body of Christ. The spiritual health of the church. As we look at our passage this morning in Titus chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, we see that this paragraph addresses a serious health problem. Rather than addressing the physical health of a nation, this passage very specifically and in detail addresses the spiritual health of the church. Thus we understand from our passage this morning, as we will see in the next two weeks, that we must be committed to the spiritual health of the church body so that the message of the gospel is not hindered. We must be committed to the spiritual health of our church body so that the message of the gospel is not hindered. Where do we see this concept of spiritual health brought up in this passage? Well, you'll see a word that's used twice in our passage this morning. It's used another two times in chapter 1. It's actually used 12 times in Scripture. Four of these times to refer to actual physical health. Eight times, all in the pastoral epistles. That's 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. All of them to refer to spiritual health. And it's translated in your Scripture this morning with the word sound. Sound. Titus 1 and verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so he may be able to give instruction in healthy doctrine. That's your word sound there. Sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, without disease, without brokenness. Titus chapter 1 and verse 13, this testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. That they may have a faith that is healthy. That they may have a faith that is not diseased by false teaching. Titus chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. But as for you, teach what accords with healthy doctrine. Sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, having a healthy, a sound faith. A sound, healthy love. A sound, healthy steadfastness. It means to be in good physical health. It means to be free from error. It means that you go to the doctor and for the first time, he says, you look great. You don't need anything. No medicine, no diet changes, no habit changes. You are the perfect 
specimen of health. That's what this word sound means. It's something that we we all strive for, some of us more than others, because some of us value it more than others. But it's something that we all need. Soundness of health. Healthiness. It's fascinating that it's actually the the word where we get our word hygiene from. The Greek word in the background sounds a lot like that word hygiene. Someone who has good hygiene, good health practices. And so, health is what Titus is dealing with in chapter 2. A healthy membership. Chapter 1 deals with healthy church leadership. Represented in a group of qualified pastors leading the congregation by lovingly teaching them the truths of Scripture. Chapter 1. Chapter 2. A healthy church membership is represented by church members who are living in obedience to the Word of God, spiritually reliant on God and accountability and accountable to each other. You could say it this way, spiritually reliant on God and each other and accountable to God and each other. So let's look at the passage before us this morning and see this topic of spiritual health in the membership beginning in chapter 2 and verse 1. Look down with me at verse 1. We'll see Paul's command, Paul's exhortation. Let me tell you a little bit about what we're going to do. We're going to look at chapter 1. This morning, I mean, we're going to look at verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, and we're also going to look at the motivations of why this is so important. And then next week, we're going to take the step of looking in detail of exactly what the church membership is responsible for. As I read through the passage, I heard many of you begin stirring as you became uncomfortable with verses 6 and 7. There's nothing today more offensive than just reading Scripture in regards to the roles of men and women in the church. And to pique your interest, I'm going to deal with that next week. So you just have to come back, okay? Let's look at verse 1 and see Paul's exhortation to doctrinal health within the church membership. Chapter 2, verse 1. Verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with healthy, sound doctrine. There are two commands in this passage given to Titus in regards to his relationship to the church membership. In regards to his relationship with the church. We see one in verse 1 and we see one in verse 6. Now these commands are given on top of the command given to him to teach sound doctrine. So earlier on, Paul has already laid the foundation, the groundwork, that the responsibility of the leadership of the church is to teach healthy doctrine, to teach that sound doctrine, and rebuke false teachers, to silence false teaching and rebuke false teachers. And so what's given in chapter 2 is given on top of that, as saying, taking the next step, this is also a responsibility. So assuming that the leadership of the church is teaching the church in healthy doctrine, Paul tells Titus to do two things. Number one, live a lifestyle that applies that doctrine in specific areas of life. And number two, encourage others to do the same. 
So this means that the role of the pastors of the church extends to more than just the public preaching of the word. For many of you, our relationship extends pretty much to this, is that I see you on Sunday, and and I may know about your life and you may know about my life, but, but the extent of my shepherding because of life stage or, or because of the, the, the vastness of our congregation, perhaps this is the greatest shepherding moment that I'll have in your life every single week is the preaching of the word to you. What Paul is saying is that a healthy church needs multiple pastors in the church so that that relationship can be leveraged to more than that. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones would say it this way, the shepherd needs to be with his sheep so that the shepherd smells like sheep. Perhaps you've been in a church where the pastor has no interaction with the congregation. The, The limits of his duties are simply to preach. And perhaps there is a disconnect between the shepherd and the sheep in that moment. And Paul is telling Titus here in verse 1 that the relationship needs to be more than just a formal teaching time and I'll show that to you here in just a minute the leadership of the church is to be an example to the church in their lives this means that their lives should be a reflection of the truth that they are teaching and that this teaching is bringing the Scripture to bear on individual lives in the church body in very specific and very practical ways. And that implies some sort of relationship. So therefore, Paul's exhortation to Titus in these two areas is that the leaders of the church need to operate their lives in ways that encourage believers to lead a healthy, spiritual life life. They are to apply the healthy doctrine that's being taught to their lives and to practice it in very specific ways. We see this reflected in these two commands. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. But as for you, you'll see the word teach there. And in chapter 2 and verse 6, you will see the word urge or encourage. We'll look at each one of these individually. The first one, speak or teach. This is not the formal word like we would use the word preach. We use the word preach or speech in a formal way, but talking in a more casual way. If you were to come to my office and someone would say, hey, I heard you saw Pastor today, how'd it go? And he said, well, he preached at me pretty hard. Or he gave me a speech that's a whole lot more formal than to say, hey, we talked about some biblical principles. And and the word that's used here in verse 1 is the latter, the informal way in which the leaders of the church are to go about their lives. But that verse begins with a contrast. It begins with the word, but. And he's contrasting verse 16. Look back at chapter 1 of verse 16. They, false teachers, profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient. Look at the last phrase unfit for any good work. And so you remember from last week that we said that false teachers have no bearing on your spiritual life. They cannot help you in any way because they have no truth for you that will leverage this truth in your life. They are unfit 
to bring sanctifying works in your heart. And so now Paul is contrasting that and saying, but for you, Titus, to pass on as you appoint the elders in the church, but your life is to give an, give an accurate representation of the gospel, both in what you do and in what you teach. As for you, for Titus to pass down to the elders who he is appointing with the congregation for leadership in the church. What is he to do? He's to teach. Laleo. He's to speak. If you have the New American Standard in front of you, you'll see that this is translated speak. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. The New Living Translation tries to communicate this more casual atmosphere by saying, but as for you, Titus, promote the kind of living have an impact on the church that promotes godly living, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome or healthy teaching. Paul is telling Titus that in everyday life, his conversation, his talking, in his interactions with the church, it needs to be in a way that reflects what? Look at the next phrase in verse 1. It says, have a conversation, talk the thing, talk in a way that promotes or accords with sound doctrine, what accords with. These are the applications of healthy biblical doctrine. The pastor must not stop with just teaching deep doctrinal beliefs of Scripture. If the preaching of Scripture ends with doctrinal indicatives, that's just, this is what's true, this is what's true, this is what's true, without saying, so this is how you should live, so this is what you believe. If we just end, the preacher ends with doctrinal indicatives of truth, then the preacher has turned the pulpit into a lectern. And the sermon then into some sort of seminary lecture that's filled with truth and needed but stop short of leveraging that truth in the hearts of God's people. Therefore, this little phrase, what accords with? Paul is telling Timothy, or Paul is telling Titus, that he needs the specific application of truth into everyday life. When the sermon turns from teaching what is true to specifically applying that truth to life, some people begin to get uncomfortable. I'll be honest with you, sometimes the application up here is uncomfortable. The confidence that we have from Scripture, we know that when we align our hearts under Scripture that we'll find rest in the truth. Amen. This is normally the portion of the message, the application portions, that offends those who claim to believe the truth, but are living a life that is outside the boundaries of Scripture. And so for those who would say, yes, that's true, but their lives don't reflect that, this is the portion of the message where they go, whoa, 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 hang on, you're starting, as we'd say in the South, you're starting to meddle a little bit. You're starting to step on my toes. It's why nobody sits in the front three rows except for my wife, right? She knows what's coming. She's prepared. 
Everyone wants to hear that God is love, but it is offensive to explain to a person that God's covenant love is directed only to those who come in repentance and faith. Meaning that there is some who have the love of God demonstrated to them, so you can tell them that God loves them, because the love has been demonstrated on the cross, but they are outside of God's covenant filial love. They're outside of God's family. Everybody is not a child of God. And so when you say God is love, everybody's like, yay! But you are outside of his covenant love. People get offended. You see the difference there? Is giving the truth and applying the truth. Many hearts will be open to hear of a God who is merciful, but turned away when they hear that the reason that they need mercy is because they're broken sinners who are under the wrathful gaze of God himself. Because mercy is the turning away of God's wrath. And so many will sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound, but very few will say, I was once the object of God's wrath, but am now the object of God's mercy. Many love to hear of heaven. Few appreciate hearing of hell. Because it's during this little phrase, what accords with, that those whose lives do not reflect Scripture have to make a choice to either align under the teaching of Scripture or to hold God at arm's length. If there is a portion of the preaching of Scripture that offends the hearer, it is the personal application of divine truth. And perhaps you'll hear this evidenced this way today. That's okay for you to believe. But just don't tell me that I must believe that also. Your words do not express your belief like your lifestyle does. The old phrase, your talk talks and your walk talks. But your walk talks louder than your talk talks. If you want to know what you believe, stop listening to what you are saying and start paying attention to what you are doing. Whatever you believe is reflected in your actions. One of the best definitions of belief is simply living as though it's true. Because if it doesn't affect your life, if it doesn't affect your actions, then you don't really believe it. Does your life reflect the truth of Scripture? Teach what accords with. The applications. What accords with what? Human tradition? No, what accords with sound doctrine. And this is where Paul reminds Timothy that the applications must be rooted in the true teachings of Scripture. Say it this way, it's okay to meddle as long as you're meddling according to the Word of God. That the applications that are being brought to bear on your life must be a reflection of what Scripture teaches. And so therefore you can say God's word requires me to. 
that the application of this doctrinal belief, the application of this truth in Scripture in my life is the following. If your lifestyle is not a reflection of what accords with sound doctrine, but rather what accords with my tradition or what accords with my church or what accords with my family, then it's unhealthy doctrine. You end up with a legalistic mindset that's ruled by a person rather than being ruled by Scripture. And so therefore you can say, well, I have a, I have a life that's lived in accords with something. Whether it's what I think is true, and I'm the ultimate arbiter of truth, or whether it's what my parents say is true, or whether it's what the church always says is true with no biblical background. All of those things will end you in an unhealthy way. Just like some diets that people come up with from the top of their head. Hey, I've got a great diet. Eat nothing but bread and eggs for three weeks and see what happens. Right? And then I'll put it all over social media and I'll get lots of money and your health will suffer, but that's okay because now I'm rich. And I just, that's not a legitimate diet, hopefully. It might be. And if it is and you're on that, don't be offended, okay? <laughs> Following Anything other than the, the healthy doctrine of Scripture and applying it to your life will result in an unhealthy Christian life. A Christian life that does not reflect sound actions. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're tempted to throw everything out with Christianity because you've seen a sort of preaching on holiness or sanctification that was legalistic in its mindset because it followed what a person thought rather than what Scripture teaches. And can I encourage you to align your heart and your minds with Scripture? If you're here and you're from a Roman Catholic background and you're used to operating your life in regards to everything that the church tells you to do, can I encourage you to see as your highest authority rather than the church, see your highest authority as God's inspired, revealed word, and see the church as under this authority as well. The only authority that the church has is to leverage the scripture into your life. We need to make sure that we're preaching holiness and sanctification. That what you do and what you say does matter. But preach holiness and sanctification in accordance with healthy doctrine, that they must go together. And so Paul encourages Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine, healthy doctrine. Don't be afraid to meddle in the church, but make sure it's in regards to Scripture. That's what he's saying. The applications are huge with this. Saying that it's the responsibility of the leadership of the church and the church membership to leverage the word of God in the lives of each other because we love each other and we're brothers and sisters in Christ and we're all walking the same road in the spiritual journey towards Christ likeness what's the second command that's given to Titus look down at verse 6 with me 
Verse 6. Likewise, in regards to this also, urge the younger men. This is the coming alongside of others to encourage them in their walk with Christ. It's the word encourage or or cheer on or urge or, or push or lead. To come alongside someone and help them. When I was in college, I used to be into road biking. And not like motorcycling, that would have been a whole lot more fun, but like pedal biking, okay? And riding uh, road bikes. And and when I was a junior in college, I participated in a fundraiser in which we um, rode as far as we could with a group of 10 guys for six straight hours. And rode about 120 miles as we rode around this loop over and over and over. And it's the definition of insanity, right? Going around and around and around. And uh, one of the guys that joined us, joined us late. And he didn't have um, any new cycling equipment, but he really wanted to try to do it. And so he had an older bike and had only been training for a couple of months for this. And on the, the day we started out strong, but into the second hour he started falling behind. And each one of us who'd been training for months for this would take turns riding beside him and just taking a hand and putting it in the small of his back and just helping him. And we didn't even push. It just was the little bit of encouragement that was needed, the little bit of force that was able to keep him up with the group. That's what this is. It's coming alongside someone in your Christian life and just placing that spiritual hand on their back and saying, hey, can I encourage you to keep doing what's right? Life's so hard, isn't it? Work situations are harder in some of your lives than I could ever imagine. Life is hard. Marriage is hard work. Parenting will kill you if it doesn't kill your kids, right? My dad would say grandkids are God's blessings for not killing your kids when you had the chance. (laughs) Life is hard. It's hard. Sometimes we need to urge, we need to come alongside and place our arm around and say, how are you doing? Can I encourage you to keep on keeping on? You know, often in our lives, we don't need someone to tell us what we need to do. We know what we need to do. We need someone to pick up their spiritual pom-poms and come alongside us and say, through the power of Scripture and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can do this. You can do this. One more week sober. One more hour sober. One more day sober. You can be true to your covenant of marriage. I know it seems impossible now. But with the power of God's Word and the power of the Holy Spirit, you can do this. You can live a victorious Christian life. You've fallen. Let's get back up. That God's given you another chance. Let's move forward. That's what this word means. That's what Paul is telling Titus to pass on to the leadership of the church to do. It's to encourage, to comfort, and believe it or not, this is the same word that Jesus uses in John 14 to name the Holy Spirit the Comforter, the Paraclete, the Parakaleo, to come alongside and encourage. That the Holy Spirit is given to you as the encourager in your life to bring to mind the words of Scripture, to bring to mind the teaching of Christ, to illuminate your mind to Scripture. 
to apply that scripture to your heart and to say you can do this through the power of the word and through the power of the Holy Spirit and you say I don't feel like I can in your weakness he can be strong like our roles together are to come alongside and let's say let's do this together to encourage coming alongside someone to encourage them in their walk is imitating and leveraging the Holy Spirit in their lives. You realize that, right? I have a dear friend who, who was an evangelist. Now he's a pastor out west. And his nickname was the Holy Spirit. We were sitting at dinner with him and he asked, how's ministry going? This was years ago, probably almost 10 years ago now. And I shared with him some struggles that we were going through. And he did not let me get away with it. He said, man, I bet it's really hard to be sanctified. I bet you really believe, you're really tempted to believe a lie, aren't you? I bet you right now are tempted to believe the lie that God's not enough. I bet you're going to be tempted and you have been tempted to turn these all these other places to find satisfaction, haven't you? You know, I bet you're struggling with bitterness, aren't you? And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on. I didn't sign up for this, right? And he got his nickname for a reason because he was not scared to lean in and to press in and to say hey I care about you too much to let you stay these attitudes and practices of sin and when you come alongside someone and you either physically or spiritually put your arm around them and you say this is really hard and let me help you remember what the Bible says Let me help you remember what to do according to Scripture, what to believe, how to think, how to pray. You know what you're doing? You actually are a visible representation of the Holy Spirit in that moment. That you are leveraging the Holy Spirit in their life. That just as the Holy Spirit is called the one who comes alongside to comfort, the the paraclete, so you can come alongside to comfort with Scripture. And so, encourage. This is not just an option for the believer. This is a command. It's an imperative. It is the purpose of the Christian life. To glorify God and disciple one another. Make disciples, right? It is the Great Commission. To go and to make disciples of all nations. And you may be sitting there thinking, Pastor Joe, that seems a little bit intense. That seems a little bit invasive. And you're right. Because the Bible worms itself into your everyday life and it leaves nothing untouched. And a brother or sister in Christ who loves you and wants your best will do the same. They will come alongside you and care enough to speak into your life. And if you love a brother or sister in Christ, you will do the same to them. That it's a pattern that we are dependent on each other. We are interdependent on our church family and we are dependent on Christ. It's the foundational relationship of discipling. This is what discipling is. 
simply coming alongside another believer and helping him or her take that next step towards Christlikeness. In what area does Johnny need to be encouraged to grow in Christ? In what area does Susan need to be encouraged to grow in Christ this week? In what way can I step into their life, worm my way into their heart, and encourage them to be more like Jesus? To press in rather than stepping back. That's the Christian life. And we're going to look at specifically what this looks like next week in how Paul outlines what this looks like worked out in the membership. But I'd like to spend the rest of the time this morning helping you understand why this is important. Because as I was praying through this, I I really intended upon preaching verses 1 through 10 in one sermon. But as I, I dug into this, I came to the realization that we can talk about this all day long, but if you don't understand the vital importance of this, Perhaps we won't be motivated like we should to live in this way. And so I want to spend the rest of the time looking at the three motivations that Paul gives to spiritual health. We find a motivation in verse 5, we find a motivation in verse 10, and we find a motivation in verse 8. I don't know why I gave it to you in that order. 5, 8, and 10. In fact, if you want to take your pencil or your pen in your Bible journals, if you don't have a Bible journal, we've got some at the South Welcome Center. We'd love to give one to you. If you have a pencil or pen and you're writing in your Bible journal, I'd like you to underline or circle or square these phrases. Look at verse 5. The end of verse 5. That or so that, purpose statement, the word of God may not be reviled. That's your first motivation, so that the word of God may not be reviled. Your second motivation is found in verse 8. Look at the end of verse 8 so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. It's your second motivation here. And your third motivation is found at the end of verse 10, so that in everything they, disciples of Christ, may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Three motivations to spiritual health. What motivations do you have to be physically healthy? Maybe it's the fact that you're still single. And you think, if I don't keep myself in good physical shape, the attractant may wear off. Right? Maybe it's I need to keep in good shape so I can continue to play with my grandkids. Maybe there is a sport that I like to participate in. And if I don't continue in this workout regimen, if I don't stay healthy, then I can't continue to play this sport. Or maybe there's a hobby that I want to participate in. And if I don't stay healthy, I can't continue this hobby. Or maybe you're just like, I want to live as long as possible. And so in order to live as long as possible, I'm going to remain physically healthy. What is your motivation to physical health? Well, God gives us in these three, in this passage, three vital, specific motivations to spiritual health. In other words, churches that are healthy give certainty 
and confidence to the gospel. Unhealthy churches undermine and hinder the testimony of Scripture and Scripture's power in the gospel. Perhaps you've been in an unhealthy church setting and you have thought or you have said things like, I wish I could invite people to church, but I don't want to invite them to our church because I don't want them to have a bad picture of the gospel. What is the motivation of healthy church membership? Number one, your first motivation is that the power of the gospel must be evident in your life. Look at the end of verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. That word reviled is the word blasphemeo. Does that sound familiar? Blaspheme. It means that if you live in an unhealthy way, rather than the word of God being lifted up, the word of God is blasphemed. Meaning that people could say, well, it's obvious that what you believe has no power because look, it's your life. You say God's word changes people. But you're proving that is not true by the way that you are living. You are saying that the word of God impacts my everyday life. And yet the way that you live blasphemes that very truth. William Kelly translates this phrase, so that the word of God may suffer no scandal. What happens every time a Christian leader comes out in scandal? The word of God is blasphemed. What happens every time that someone who supposedly is a teacher and preacher of the gospel and is faithful one comes out that for years and years that person has been living a life of financial impropriety, moral ambivalence, destruction, moral destruction. It's a scandal. That's what this phrase is referring to. Why is it so important that we be a healthy church so that God's word is not blasphemed? John MacArthur says this, Unbelievers judge the genuineness and value of our faith more by our living than by our theology. In doing so, they judge the truth and power of the Word of God by the way in which we live. The world judges the Gospel, which is the heart of the Word of God, by the character of the people who believe and claim to be transformed by it that people will judge whether or not the Bible is true by looking at your life. So don't blaspheme the Gospel. That's a motivation. That you can actually blaspheme the very words of God by the way that you live in your spiritually unhealthy lifestyle. Those who are living in step with the truth of Scripture prove with their lives that what the Bible says is true. Because the definition of belief is acting as though it's true. 
In contrast to this, those who, were said, who have said they've been changed by the power of the Gospel or say that they believe the truth but have now rejected the power that changed them or claim that this power is not real, they give an excuse to every unsaved person to never look at the Bible again. You've heard people say, that's why I'm not a Christian. You want to know why I'm not a Christian? Because that right there. You've heard people say it. I've heard people say it. You've seen people post about it. It's a motivation, friend, for living a healthy Christian life. The prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36 tells the children of Israel that it's for the very reason that they said they believed God, but they lived like the world that God brought judgment and scattered His people. It was the lack of repentance, the lack of the walk that matched the talk. God says, you have lived in my land and defiled it with your deeds. Thus, giving all the unsaved world an excuse to blaspheme the truth. Living a life that reflects healthy doctrine shows everyone that the gospel does in fact have the power to change your life. The most powerful testimony to the truth of the gospel is your changed life and my changed life. Friends, we have members in here that are beautiful examples of the power of the gospel in using broken things because we're all broken. Some of you in your life, before you were saved, or maybe even after you were saved, lived a life in accordance with the brokenness of sin rather than the purity of righteousness, and yet you have been restored because of the power of Scripture. That is what the world needs to see. That is the motivation for living the truth, that the most powerful evangelistic tool that you have is your testimony. It's the fact that you're changed It's the fact that God doesn't require people to be fixed in order to come to Him. That in in regeneration, in salvation, God changes people and then sets them on a process of change that is, it's messy, isn't it? And it's not perfect. But it's living in a changed life. In the late 1800s, the German philosopher Heinrich Heine said this, show me your redeemed life and I might be inclined to believe your Redeemer. It's convicting, isn't it? Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to God. Number one, the power of the gospel is evident, verse 5. Number two, the truth of the gospel is vindicated. The truth of the gospel is vindicated, verse 8, so that opponents, those who come against the truth, those who are saying that the Bible does not contain truth, may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. This this goes hand in hand with the first one. 
You see, opponents to the gospel in Crete were attacking the church, saying that the scriptures were not true, saying that Christianity was just a hoax, maybe the opium for the masses, right? The problem was that although the church was defending the truth of their words, their actions were actually proving the naysayers true. Spurgeon said, it's a pity when truth suffers at the hand of its own advocate. Perhaps the very worst wounds, he goes on, the worst wounds that truth has received has been in the house of its friends. That those who claim something is true and yet prove the opposite by their works. Those Christians who are living a double life are telling the world that not only does the gospel not have power, but the real truth lies elsewhere. It's the life of the believer that silences the critics. It's the open and holy life of the Christian, true integrity in the darkness and in the light, that puts to shame the ungodly critic who makes up lies against him. You're no different than than I am. You're right, but God saved me. And by His grace, I no longer have to look for happiness like you do. Friend, this is what should motivate you to true integrity, not just outward conformity. A life that backs up a verbal assent to the belief system that it claims, but just verbal assent and lacks the true actions otherwise, brings shame on those who stand for the gospel and gives critics an opportunity to say evil. It's the man who gets cut off in traffic and has choice words for the person who cut him off and thus begins a road rage incident which ends with the man finally getting back in his line, in his place, in front of the person behind him who can read his bumper sticker that says, follow me to Sunday school, right? Jesus is the answer. Well, if that's the answer according to the way you live, I don't want that answer. The truth of the gospel is vindicated. And lastly, look at verse 10. The beauty of the gospel is manifested. If if I could have a favorite phrase in the book of Titus, I think this would be it. It's in the middle of the book for a reason. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God. It's where we get our word cosmetics. It means arranging something in a way that gives attractiveness and beauty. What makes the gospel attractive? It's not being like the world to win them. It's showing that God has changed you. It's living in a way that reveals the power of the gospel. It's the genuine life of the believer. Recently, we had someone in our church get engaged. I don't want to embarrass them, so they won't say who they are, but they're sitting right over there. Um, And she came up to me and she said, hey, look at this beautiful engagement ring that was made just for me. And it's unlike any other engagement ring you'll see because it has this and it has this, you know, and it's just amazing. And and it's one of one. It's unique. It's adorned in a specific way. 
Good job, Josh. Right. <laughs> you know what happens when God looks down from heaven and he sees you living a Christian life? He says, look at my child. They're one of one. And their background is exactly what I have for them. And their Christian life is exactly what I have for them. And as they struggle in the Christian life and they make right choices, you're like that beautifully faceted ring. Faceted ring. It says, this is adorning the gospel. That when people look at your life, they see a beautiful picture of Jesus. Because God has arranged your life as one of one. When you live the Christian life, friends, you adorn God. You can say, you're a jewel in his crown. Like, you're shining bright. Your holy lifestyle is what glints gleams and shines and draws people in to say they must have something that I don't. And whatever they have, I need. It's the unsaved, empty teenager overcome with trying to find happiness and belonging by pursuing sin who's attracted to the gospel by seeing a godly teen content in Christ and living a life of purity and finding true joy through the Word of God. It's the unsaved, grumpy, crotchety senior citizen who spent his whole life trying to get what he thought would make him happy, and it didn't work. Seeing the godly, seasoned saint who's entering the sunset years of his or her life content, with joy and serving. Getting what you want won't make you happy. Getting Christ will fill you with joy. That's right. I'm running out of time, but one quick illustration. Um, Becky's uh, mom has moved up to God's country from Florida, and um, she used to have a house in Florida. My father-in-law was alive. We'd go down and visit and uh, Florida's awesome because the weather's so beautiful in the winter, but the people are terrible. Oh, are you from Florida? Everybody but you. See, I shouldn't say the people, some people. We were in an area that had a lot of retirees, and golf courses were full, and restaurants were full early, you know. And we're trying to find a seat, and we're standing in line, and I'm, I'm looking around. And everybody was miserable. They're yelling at their waiters, and they're yelling at their waitresses, and they're grumpy, and things aren't done just right. And my food's too hot, or it's too cold, or there's not enough ice. And all this kind of stuff. And because they get everything they want. And they're miserable. They're miserable because they don't have Jesus. So don't buy into that lie, Right? Move to Florida and be a light among the Gentiles. <laughs> Amen. They say, listen, adorn the gospel. It's the unsaved married couple who's drawn to the gospel 
because they see your godly marriage and they want to know what you're doing right. It's the unsaved co-worker who sees your life of singleness that stands in contrast to their own because you're filled with peace and contentment rather than anger and depression. Those who've been saved by the gospel and their life reflects that truth are beautiful adornments to the gospel. That's the motivation. That without this, friend, I know it's hard and I know it takes work and I know it's, it's vulnerable to let people in and I know it's hard to lean into your brother or sister in Christ who you know is not living for Christ and say, hey, have you thought about, let me, can I pray with you? I know it's hard. But when we do that, we adorn the gospel because we live in a, in a healthy church. Healthy church isn't one that doesn't have problems. We all have problems. It's a healthy church where we're all seeking Christ through those problems together. We're all beggars finding bread in the same place. Just trying to live for Christ. So if you were to look at a physical body, you could see examples of physical health or physical disease. And so through the rest of chapter 2, Paul gives us evidences of spiritual health and spiritual disease. He speaks to the older men and to the older women. He speaks to the younger men and to the younger women and all those who are employees. And I would encourage you to read through verses 1-10 through and study it out this week. We'll pick up there next week, praying that God would help us to adorn his gospel correctly. Father, thank you so much that we could come together with your truth and love you, pursue you. May our lives adorn the truth so that the gospel would not be hindered. May we leverage the truth into our everyday life 